realizing this was a flop uh, among the business groups, decided the only way to preserve a cartel or preserve a merger is to have the government enforce it. The term turn of the political arm to create the cartel for you. And this, uh, this was the origin of progressive regulation. The progressive system was not a group of far-sighted, uh, essentially it was not a group of far-sighted intellectuals who sat around and said we have to plan, we have to curb businessmen for the sake of the public interest. There's a group of groups of businessmen saying we have to impose cartels through the government uh, and thereby eliminating our competition, curbing the, the, the maverick firm which doesn't want to engage in a cartel, and, uh, and gaining profits that way. Broadcasting from Brisbane, Australia, this is the FOMO Show. And I'm Joe. And this is a fortnightly podcast where we talk about the exciting ideas changing the world today and what might change the world tomorrow. We'll help you stay across what's going on so you don't get the fear of missing out. You can find us at FOMO.show or by searching for The FOMO Show on your platform of choice. Now, everything in the shows in the show notes, you can find links and stuff we're talking about and timestamps are relevant parts, so you can always skip ahead or find it later. So this episode, we are going to be discussing a bunch of different topics. Uh, we're going to be talking, first of all, about Libra. We've kind of danced around it a little bit, highlighted it here or there, but there's a bunch of news around Libra this week. So we want to do a little bit of a deeper dive into Facebook's Libra cryptocurrency. Yeah, we're also going to be chatting about um, some interesting things such as central bank currencies and uh, the recent oil attacks in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and we've got a call coming in from Jordan around that. So, yeah, um, that's the show for you. So, what have you been up to the last couple of weeks, mate? Mate, just sort of working, really. I mean, I took my car to the mechanic because the old power steering left. But uh, apart from that, uh, oh, I have been watching this awesome Bitcoin rap battle from Rhythm Combinator on YouTube. Uh, it puts Alexander Hamilton and Satoshi Nakamoto in a rap bat, yeah, in a battle rap, and it's pretty good. Yeah, you linked it. Um, you linked it in the FOMO chat, and it is. It's actually really well done. Good beat. Good beat. Mm. Mm. What about yourself? What have you been up to? Um, I have been. Uh, well, I was on holidays, so last time we recorded, obviously, I was uh, up in the mountains, and that, that was great. That? Yeah, really, really good. Um, we just got out. There were some bushfires. Uh, I think it was like the day we left. So we, we got out before all that started. I think the place we stayed was fine. But um, yeah, it was, it was actually getting smoky as we left. And then um, yeah, over the next couple of days, there were a number of different fires. So um, yeah, but the holiday was was great. Um, you know, did just relaxed, um, got nice. away from everything, which was really nice. Uh, and while I was up there, I was uh, re-listening to the Bitcoin Standard by Safadine cool. Amus, cool. um, which is just like, it's 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 so good. Like it's a really, if you want a book that um, essentially tracks the history of money, mm-hmm. uh, so it sets out where money's come from, why the gold standard was such an important thing and looks at economic activity over time, and kind of where we've gone wrong as well. Yeah. Uh, and then links out all the Bitcoin and shows why Bitcoin is really good, sound money and what, what uh, Safadine refers to as hard money. It's, uh, it's brilliant. Like, it's just, I think it is the best argument for Bitcoin you'll get in a book form um, and why it's so important to humanity, like as a species, uh, that you'll probably find, at least at the moment. 
That's really cool. Awesome. Well, I need to get a copy of that and have it and check it out because you've been raving about it quite a bit now. Yeah, it's 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 brilliant, and it's it's just yeah. I, he, he did such a good job. I sit there like listening to it, um, just being like, how did this guy even write this? Like, it is so well written. Um, very very impressive book. Very easy to understand too, which is actually kind of hard to do when you're talking about Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Is it available on like Audible as an audiobook as well? Yeah, yeah, it's available on, on Audible as an audiobook. Um, the narrator I've got's a little bit monotonous, but you do get used to him, and once mm-hmm. you're used to him, um, you know, yeah, you'll you'll just get hooked on the mm-hmm. the subject matter and the content. Um, mm-hmm. And then, yeah, it's also available in hard copy as well. So we'll uh, we'll link that in the show notes. This podcast is not investment or any other type of advice. So full disclosure, we're both invested in different shares, funds, and cryptocurrencies, some of which we talk about on the show, but we're not saying you should buy anything at all. So if we talk about an investment product, it doesn't mean you should buy it. Are you certain you're private and safe online? Check out our new resource at fomo.show forward slash privacy. It's a great repository of our favorite tools to understand and improve your online security. And if you're new to cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and blockchain and all that kind of technology, and you want to know a little bit more about it, you can check out our Blockchain Basics series, which covers the fundamentals of the technology. It starts from episode two and continues on until episode eight. Let's jump into the news. So first headline, Bitcoin expert has cancelled his Australia trip due to the threat of going to jail from this new encryption law. Yeah, so Andreas Antonopoulos, who many will know as one of the uh, gateway drugs to Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, through his videos, he's cancelled his Australian visit over some recent encryption laws, some of which we've covered on this show previously, which force users to reveal device passwords or face years in jail. Yeah, so the best-selling author and Let's Talk Bitcoin podcast, he also raised a prospect that the anti-encryption bill would enable authorities to force Bitcoin users to provide their private keys. Yeah, which isn't actually anything I've even, I haven't even thought about that as well, but it, it, it is a valid question. Um, and Antonopoulos is the author of Mastering Bitcoin and the Internet of Money, and he's one of the most re- respected figures in the Bitcoin world, and he's visited Australia on a number of occasions in the past, including an appearance as an expert witness before the Australian Senate Banking Committee to discuss Bitcoin regulation. Yeah, but he said he's not going to be returning um, because of these new laws. And um, yeah, there was a little. This was this was in a clip on his YouTube channel. So um, yeah, here's what he had to say about it. Um, I had to postpone my visit to Australia because Australia passed a law that um, made it mandatory to provide passwords for any devices when you cross the border into Australia. And if you don't, uh, they can put you in jail for five years. Now, that means that if I go to Australia, I have to go with no devices at all uh, because I can't go into a country with my devices that have confidential material uh, client attorney privilege material, uh, material for my companies, you know, nothing I'm ashamed of. Uh, but basically the fundamental right of privacy that we all have um, is, is basically uh, being violated by laws like this. So Australia is doing this and 
I'm not going to uh, basically put my privacy at risk uh, by giving passwords to any government, primarily because I don't trust governments to store data securely, because they've proven again and again that they can't store data securely. It keeps leaking. So I don't want my data to leak together with the data of hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands of other people. Uh, theoretically, Australia could consider uh, a Bitcoin hardware wallet as an encryption device to which you need to provide your password. Um, and if they did that, God knows what they'd do with that device. Uh, I wouldn't think that's very uh, safe. So, yeah, I mean, it's a very difficult situation. Uh, New Zealand has also passed some similar laws, but in their case, there's a monetary fine, but no jail sentence, so they'll just basically deport you if you refuse to give them passwords. Um, but uh, in Australia, it's much worse because uh, you do not get deported. You get put into jail. As a foreign visitor on a visa, um, you'll get put into jail if they ask you for your password, and you don't uh, give it to them. So uh, I don't see any way how I could currently uh, travel to Australia to do my job without any, um, without any digital devices on me. The chances, of course, of me being actually stopped at the border and searched for that reason, pretty slim. But any chance that's not zero is bad enough for me, so I'm out. Yikes. It's good that he's sticking by his principles, but um, yeah. yeah, it's just stupid that it has to happen. Yeah, I mean, we need more people to do this, I think. Like, it's it's something that I was actually, I saw it and I was like, that's really good that someone's finally actually taken a stand and said, no, this is too far. This is ridiculous. Mm. I'm just not going to come until things change. So, mm. not that I think he's, he's not coming will have any bearing on our wonderful government deciding to change any laws, but... There was an interesting opinion piece that was posted in VentureBeat by Henry He, who was a co-founder and CEO of Sesame Open. He's an ex-Googler um, and, yeah, he's really interested in token economics. Now, he has some really interesting things to say about China's new central bank cryptocurrency. And he's got some uh, suggestions for our own governments. Yeah, so recently uh, China's central bank, the People's Bank of China, surprised the business and crypto world with its plan to launch a central bank-backed digital currency. Now, the news came after the announcement of Facebook's Libra, uh, which we've talked about before, and it created the perception that China is playing catch-up. Uh, but China, he says anyway, has put more than five years into researching the idea, and the product, the DCEP, or Digital Currency Electronic Payment, was reported even back in 2018. So as expected, most of the responses, you know, have focused on how it could be a big competitor to the, you know, well-known stablecoins like Tether, as well as, you know, Facebook's Libra. But the most significant impact that this DCEP could have involves another sector, which is payments. So Henry He then says he believes China is creating a new public infrastructure of payments, which is completely open, like cash payments. And this new open infrastructure is going to cultivate, he says, many further innovations. Now, um, there's an open payment infrastructure that they're talking about and he's saying that that's a public service and he suggested that the US Federal Reserve as the US Central Bank shouldn't just watch to see how Chinese Central Bank's big experiment goes, it should be leading similar efforts in the US. So, interesting little opinion there, but what I find really interesting about this piece is what he's saying about how, according to the public news, China's positioning this product as a substitute for M. Zero, which is 
basically the amount of physical money that's in the economy at any given time. Now, yeah, China argues that on the one hand, M1 and M2, which are other less liquid forms of money, they've already been digitized and there's no efficiency gain to introducing a new digital currency. But on the other hand, M0 has many problems such as counterfeit money and money laundering, but it has the advantages of anonymity, which is a feature that consumers like compared to other electronic payment tools. Yeah, and you might he said that you might think that intuitively that makes sense since China's less developed and hence more people rely on cash for payment than in other economies like the US. But the data that has been put together actually says something different. Yeah, so the it actually turns out that the the ratio of money and cash to other forms of money, uh, the the M2 money, is actually lower in China than it is in places like the United States. But um but yeah, well, then he goes on to say, so the you know there's it's the population in China and the technology adoption is really sort of there. So what are the real goals of China's product? He asks. Yeah, and, and he said that he believes that China's DCEP product is designed to replace the mobile payment system in China. So China's mobile payment system is and market is enormous, and its volume has reached two hundred seventy-seven trillion um, of, of their currency in, in 2018. And that's about 38 times greater than China's M0. And that, he said, is almost also might explain why China's M0 to M2 ratio is so low as the velocity of money through mobile payments is super fast. And so less cash is actually needed to support the economy. Now, just to put that number in perspective, that is $39 trillion are in that mobile payment market in china and that is crazy yeah that's that's absolutely massive and and it's it's been led by alipay and wechat pay which are the dominant mobile payment platforms in china and have a combined 90 percent plus market share but the, the thing with alipay and wechat pay is that they're digital wallets wallets and their parent companies are not banks so to use these services customers and consumers they first need to deposit real money into these digital wallets. However, you're charged a withdrawal fee and you're not incentivized to move money from these digital wallets back to your bank. So the result is that these digital wallets store these enormous cash reserves that these companies actually make a huge amount of money from because they're you know investing, lending and running other products from them. And since they're not regulated as banks, it actually creates a huge financial risk for consumers. And it's no surprise that China's taken action to protect that money because that money has actually reached, you know, or 175-odd billion dollars that is held in those areas. Yeah, and another major risk with that too is that Alipay and WeChat Pay are closed mobile payment systems. So payment is a critical component for commerce, but they're closed systems. So they, at least the author alleges that they they, uh, represent a long-term threat to the growth of commerce. And he has said that closed systems discourage innovations, which I generally agree with, um, and monopoly positions will eventually dictate terms for the commerce ecosystem. And that's very true as well. I mean, we see that with Federal Reserve banks and governments now, they have a monopoly position on the monetary supply by and large, the issuance of that, and they dictate all the terms uh, that come with that monetary supply. Yeah, so he then says that the, the, this new China central banking sort of 
uh, digital currency will disrupt these closed systems by creating a new payment infrastructure that's completely open, like physical cash, enabling true peer-to-peer mobile digital payment. So he reckons that that's going to stimulate a wave of payment innovations, finance innovations, and, and, and commerce innovation. Now, it is worth noting that China's DCP is a centralised design, and the author of this article does actually acknowledge, um, even in his narrative, that um, powers can be abused to censor transactions, track individuals and their spending habits, and favour government loyalists, um, which, yeah, I think we'd agree is a, is a major threat of something that's state-based, digital, centralised, and you know has a has essentially is tracking all the transactions of of its users absolutely and he sincerely hopes that the software of this will will be open source like libra and he also hopes that its implementation serves the interests of people uh which it won't yeah, i mean you just you've just got to look at what the chinese government currency does now just like everyone's currencies it serves you know it, it is inflated to serve the interests of mm. uh, the government and the banks Mm. So, 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 so then after this, the author goes on to recommend that what the US should do is actually just copy China and just get the, the US Federal Reserve should work with the US Treasury and they should create this um, state-backed currency and have the control over it and use it for the good of the people and have it as that public service, which is, which is an interesting idea. Now, I don't know. What I keep noticing with China is we always look at stuff that China are doing and we say, oh, look, China are using this for surveillance and blocking people from payments and stuff like that but then seven years later we end up doing exactly the same thing Mm, mm. um so i don't know i'm not going to fall for that one more time but i it would not surprise me if we just copy the same thing and then yeah we can block people from getting donations or whatever and i mean this has always been the thing with state-backed crypto i mean people have floated this this kind of idea before and it's i mean i think even if you go way back into the archives we talked about this early on with our um, you know, blockchain basic series. I think we talked about the fact that you know Bitcoin has enabled <clears throat> uh, free commerce. It's enabled a money that isn't controlled uh, by any one party. It's completely open. Uh, it's decentralized, and um, the the risk was always that that governments would look at that, and and, and you know, and governments that currently control a lot of the money issuance and the the infl- the, the rates in which they inflate currencies, and you know, def- essentially. Um, devalue everyone's money the mm. risk was always that they would look at some of that technology like the um the the trackable nature of the ledger and mm. the uh mutability of the transactions and they'd say well we could use that too you know like we could upgrade upgrade our monetary system to take advantage mm. of some of those features while doing away with things like censorship resistance like mm. dis- distribution like uh, the ability for you know everyone to essentially host a full version of the node and mm, to not be mm. centrally controlled. Mm. The author wraps up with an interesting point, saying that look, if the government doesn't take action, then you're going to see private companies like Facebook, J.P. Morgan, and countless others with their private economic motivations. They're going to step in to fill that payment void and capture a bunch of the value created. But uh, <laughs> interesting. Yeah, I guess it's kind of like which you know which one's worse. I mean, at least the the, the, the argument for having some of the bigger companies step in is at least they're competing against each other. You know, at mm. least they at least they have to provide a good service. But I think there's a lot of knockoffs going. Like a lot of people are wanting to do knockoffs of Bitcoin and um, and take some of the parts they like and keep away other parts. But 
on a longer time frame, like on a longer time scale, I think that's that's just going to only uh, increase the differentiation between something like Bitcoin and some of these these knockoffs because they're going to have the inherent issues that they. Um, the current monetary systems have, which is that they are centrally controlled, they are inflated, uh, they devalue, and they they contribute to these um, cycles of booms and recessions. You know, mm. and um, that's actually that's actually so important. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's just they're not sound money. I guess is the conclusion there. Like these, at the end of the day, these won't be backed by any stable asset. They won't have a good stock to flow ratio. All the things you want in sound money, the, these things just they just won't have. And, mm. you know, whether it is a private corporation doing that or whether it is a government doing that, I guess at least the only, the only good thing to say is at the moment, the, uh, the way things are shaping up, the government currencies are going to have to compete with the private corporation currencies unless mm. there's regulatory action that, you know, that comes into play. Well, let's talk about the, uh, the private corporation currency. So moving on to the next piece, uh, central banks uh, have met with Libra founders in Switzerland. Yeah, so Facebook's attempt to drag cryptocurrencies into the mainstream with its Libra digital coin met with further scepticism recently when an ECB board member, uh, and that's the uh, European Central Central Bank, Bank, um, said that such stable coins pose serious risks. Yeah, so uh, Benoit Kerr, uh, he told central bank officials from around the world that the new breed of virtual currencies were largely untested and pledged a tough regulatory approach which was adding to warnings from authorities elsewhere. Yeah, and this came during an event at the Bank of International Settlements uh, in Basel where a group of seven working group on stablecoins met to discuss regulatory issues posed by new digital currencies. So, yeah, he, um, so he said stablecoins are largely untested, especially on the scale that's required to run a global payment system. Um, so that was, yeah, he, he actually... Ch- chairs the the BIS hosted committee on payments and market infrastructures he said that they give it rise to a number of serious risks related to public policy priorities and he said that the bar for regulatory approval will be high now it was topical because on friday france and germany's finance ministers said at a meeting of the eurozone finance ministers that libra and other cryptocurrencies pose serious risks to consumers financial stability and even monetary sovereignty it's it's interesting that they're saying, oh, this poses a risk to f- monetary sovereignty, but that's literally the power of those people who said <laughs> that to exercise exclusive legal control over their money. Yeah, wasn't there some quote recently? I don't know whether it was from the States or whether it was from the European guys that basically said uh, currency control of currency and issuance of currency is the is and always has been the realm of um, of, of the government or the, the prerogative of the government or something, which is just, I mean, it's only been that way for just on a hundred years. Um, before then it was, it was never the realm of the government until you go back to, you know, certain, certain societies in medieval or Roman times or Byzantine times. But even then, you know, they weren't issuing currency. They were just minting gold. And it's, it's awful. Yeah, exactly. Cause I mean, the, the worst thing about it is that they can issue money, but they can also remove money. Mm. Mm. And I don't know, that that scares me personally. I mean, if you want to talk about monetary sovereignty, which is what they're talking about there, they're saying it poses a risk to monetary sovereignty. I mean, if you want to talk about sovereignty of money, um, the, the, the fact that governments currently control monetary issuance means that money is not sovereign. You know, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's completely subordinate to the wills and whims of a government and a central bank. 
Um, money will only be sovereign when it's something you know that's that's good money, like we've talked about before, Bitcoin or gold or something something else. It's not like the issuance is separate from the the, the ruling class, I guess. And there's mm. and there's, there's no power there to just issue more money based on your whim. Because mm, mm-hmm. mm. you've got to find more gold. Exactly. Yeah. There's a, yeah. A, uh, what are they, a high stock to flow ratio. There you go. <laughs> well, I mean, in typical government fashion, this group of seven advanced economies, they warned in July that they wouldn't let Libra proceed until all regulatory concerns have been addressed. And what they said was that, in typical government fashion, a prolonged discussion mm. over the project may, may first be required. So lots of meetings, lots of taxpayer money on sandwiches and tea and chauffeurs and hotel rooms and mobile phone bills and all of the things that we we pay for in our taxes, they need a prolonged discussion to decide whether or not to let Libra proceed. So, yeah, good, glad, yes. Mm. And the conclusion reached by the French, and I think the Germans as well came out and said this, uh, was basically that um, in the current conditions, they can't authorise the development of Libra on, uh, on their soil. Yeah, interesting. So, uh, luckily, it's in data centres, not soil, but yeah. Yeah, so Libra spokesman said that the event was constructive. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for who? Um, And and they added that the association was committed to engaging with central banks and regulators to realise its goal of a stable and low-cost payment system. Look, honestly, I reckon they just wanted the free sandwiches paid for by taxpayers. Yeah, well, I mean, they're good sandwiches. Oh, mate, you can bet. There's no central bank here who's going to eat anything less no. than, like, salmon and truffle sandwich, you if know, you, something? If you brought out, like, <laughs> ham and cheese sandwiches, particularly if it was, like, those the single cheese, you know, like the process. Oh, you yeah, yeah. to bring yeah. that out and, you know, sit it on a central banker's table, they'd flip the table. They'd flip the table and they'd say, bring me back my caviar sandwiches, please. Mate, that, uh... Yeah, eating like a just an average citizen, you know, doing an average. Job. It's a tough job running central banks, you know. No, public servant life, eh? Oh. <laughs> to all our central bank friends listening to the podcast, thanks for tuning in. Look, it's not your fault that you work for a horrific organisation that causes <laughs> death and destruction around the world. Interesting little tweet that was posted just just alongside all of this. Uh, Rhythm Trader on Twitter posted, yeah, Facebook is meeting with 26 central banks to discuss Libra today. Meanwhile, Bitcoin has broke broken 100 exahashes per second without asking for anyone's permission. The internet will always beat intranets. <laughs> Do you remember intranets? I mean, I feel like intranets have kind of gone out of vogue. Like, you don't oh, really hear mate. intranets much anymore, do you? Oh, mate. Uh, in, intra- I, I, those are great systems. I think they're awesome. Mm. But, yeah, very sadly, not, 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 that, uh, not that common. Mm. Oh, well. Oh. Anyway, final bit of our two minutes hate on Libra. Uh, JP Morgan uh, are warning that stable coins like Libra are at risk from negative yields, um, creating a system gridlock. Wow. So this is <laughs> be this afraid. Is, this is the same JP Morgan who's CEO uh what did he call Bitcoin? Uh oh basically is an idiot. Yeah, he just anyway, yeah. He said he didn't believe in it or something. Um so the new breed of stablecoins led by Facebook's Libra could be vulnerable to failure in periods of network stress. 
So according to the analysis from these guys, they, um, which is Libra, lack the short-term liquidity of other payment systems. So usage could grow faster than the network can safely support. Mm, so in a note to clients, an analyst highlighted the potential for substantial growth in stablecoin payment systems like Libra. But JP Morgan also urged caution if the networks become responsible for a significant proportion of global transaction activity. So the note explains that as currently designed and proposed, they do not take into account the microstructure of operating such a payment system. The risk of payment system gridlock, particularly during periods of stress, could have serious macroeconomic consequences. Now, another risk pointed out in the note was that of negative yields. Now, Libra will rely on income from collateral in its reserve account of fiat currencies. However, oh. yields on most major currencies are already negative and trends wow. point to further global monetary easing. That's actually a great point. So what they're saying is that, like, look, any system that relies on reserve asset income to fund their operational and other ongoing costs that actually becomes very unstable in a negative yield world. So a fully negative yielding Libra reserve has become a plausible and some would argue likely risk. Mm, yeah, and it's, you know, I guess it's against the backdrop of uh, the, the broader economic system as well, where the, these, like we're, we're talking more and more about negative yielding assets and negative yielding uh, funds and savings accounts and, and everything else. Um yeah, I, no, I think that's a fair conclusion. I mean, I, I guess the the thing is though is that if if the underlying currencies are um, subject to negative yielding, then there's probably going to be bigger problems going on than just Libra. You know, it's going to be across mm, the board mm. in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, I think you're 100 percent right there. But what I reckon from Facebook's perspective is they're probably going to run it as a loss leader. So yeah. let's say every currency becomes minus. I don't know, every year your bank charges you 2% of all of the money you've got in there. I reckon Facebook would just take some of the profits from advertising and just plug that back in to just fix up that loss mm. of 2 whatever percent every year. Because in times of economic stress, if people are still using them for payments, they probably couldn't give two, you know, whatevers. They'll just, I reckon they just probably just sit there and just, take that loss because it's just adoption they want people using it yeah. and think of all the value in that data you know who people are sending money to how often they do it where they're spending it la la, la all the demographics about them whether they were messaging somebody yesterday about buying a ring to propose to somebody they got an ad and then they bought a ring using libra sorry it goes on for ages but oh, yeah. yeah and it, 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 it'd be a good problem to have for them anyway because it just mean they've had a lot of buy-in from their yeah. work, you know, exactly. it means that things working. So, yeah, I completely agree. I don't think they'll be they'll be too worried about um, you know having to patch up some of the negative yields. Mm. Yeah, mm. it's actually quite timely. I got an email from my bank today saying they'd drop my savings rate uh, from I think it was two point three percent per annum to two point two percent per annum now, and that was I think I was at I think I was at two point seven five percent per annum at the start of the year. So. Wow. Yeah, we've dropped. Oh, thanks for being a valued customer. Yeah, eh? yeah, we dropped. We've dropped nearly. Well, yeah, over half a percent in nine months. Mm. Closer and closer to negative interest rates. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm putting a little bit here and a little bit there into Bitcoin. Mm. Similar. Someone else who's putting money into uh, Bitcoin or uh, at least a blockchain 
is NBA star Spencer Dinwiddie. Yeah, so, um, yeah, he's reportedly uh, set to turn his three-year, $34 million contract into a blockchain tokenized bond. Uh, Investors will be able to put money into the contract and earn interest based on his basketball performance. Yeah, so I mean, he, he, this is it's hard to determine whether this is actually legit or this is just a publicity stunt. But um, <laughs> Dinwiddie has agreed to this the thirty four million dollar contract, um, and he told sources last week um, that uh, he will start his own company that will allow him to securitize his NBA t- contract in the form of a digital token. Now, unlike most cases where players receive smaller payouts throughout the duration of their contract. Dinwiddie will receive an upfront lump payment. So, yeah, very confusing, but his company is going to issue tokens to investors who will be able to earn interest based on his basketball performance. And it's uh, still unclear on which blockchain the tokens will be issued and what exactly all the risks are with it. But, um, yeah, I mean, these bonds are going to be using his NBA contract as a guarantee. So if he terminates his contract before 2022 um, the tokens are worthless yeah i mean if, if they have any worth at all i guess but i mean this this isn't the first time bonds have been tokenized just three days ago santander issued a 20 million dollar bond on the ethereum blockchain um, and over a year ago the austrian government announced it would auction off 1.3 billion dollars worth of bonds on ethereum nice well um Look, the news of this uh, NBA contract did spark a bit of a chat on Twitter. Uh, Some people praising him for using it to take control of his finances and, you know, get the news out there, put a spotlight on it. But, um, yeah, other people said it was a risky endeavour. It's a little bit bizarre, isn't it? I mean, tokenising your sports contract as a bond and then basing the returns on your performance. I mean... Yeah. Like... Uh, yeah, it's hard to even kind of uh, like it, that's not even really what bonds are meant to be used for. But um. yeah, because apparently he got his contract as an upfront lump sum payment, so that means he's got thirty-four million dollars in the bank regardless. Yeah, and now he's trying to tell you that that thirty-four million dollars in his bank is now some kind of a token. Well, it sounds like you're going to earn interest on it somehow. So maybe he's fractionally <laughs> lending against his. Is uh, against this token. You probably put it all on BitConnect 2.0. Who knows? <laughs> it's very confusing, but it you know maybe I'll put out a white paper or uh, something like that. <laughs> this is ridiculous. But I mean, it's cool though. I mean, it's it's seeing people using smart contracts, but or is it just a token? Like, what's going on there? I'd be interested to see what he actually structures it as. Yeah, yeah. I I think we need to see the fine print. And there'd probably be, have to be a lot of fine print before anyone's going to put down their hard-earned cash. Um, yeah. Unless you're a central banker, in which case it's not hard-earned. <laughs> Do you remember when there was that, uh, that what, what was it, useless coin or... Um, <laughs> oh, what was it? it that Someone literally, um, useless Ethereum token. Wow. Do you remember that? Like back at the height of the, the craze. That seems to ring a bell, yeah. yeah. Yeah, someone decided to make a useless Ethereum token and like run an ICO for this token. Um, and they had like 50 grand or something. <gasps> people, It actually had a market cap of like 60 grand or something because people were actually buying this useless Ethereum token, you know? Brilliant. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. 
Yeah, what is it they say about a, a fool and his money? Mm, anyway. <laughs> Next bit of news, uh, and we'll move out of the, uh, the crazy world of crypto now. Oil has jumped the most ever after an attack has cut the Saudi Arabian supplies. Yeah, so this one's come out of Bloomberg, but you've probably seen about this in every news source on the planet that gives some kind of world news. State energy producer Saudi Aramco, they lost about 5.7 million barrels per day of output on Saturday the 14th of September after 10 unmanned aerial vehicles allegedly struck the world's biggest crude processing facility in Abkaik, I think, uh, which is how you pronounce it, and the kingdom's second biggest oil field in Kurais. So for all markets, it's the single worst sudden disruption ever, surpassing the loss of Kuwaiti and Iraqi petroleum supply in August uh, 1990 when Saddam Hussein invaded the, his neighbour. Uh, it also exceeds the loss of Iranian oil output in, the nine, in 1979 during the Islamic Revolution, uh, at least according to the International Energy Agency. So, yeah, in an extraordinary start to trading, London's Brent futures jumped almost $12 a barrel in the seconds after the open on the Monday after. So the biggest intraday advance in dollar terms since they were launched in 1988. Uh, On the New York Mercantile Exchange, the West Texas intermediate contracts were frozen for about two minutes after the scale of the move delayed the market open. Now, Saudi Arabia can restart a significant volume of the halted oil production within days, but needs weeks to restore full output capacity. Um, At least people familiar with the matter said... Now, the kingdom or its customers may use stockpiles to keep oil supplies flowing in the short term, and Aramco could consider declaring itself unable to fulfill the contracts on some international ship shipments, known as a force majeure to us uh, lawyers, um, <laughs> <laughs> if the resumption of full capacity at Abcake takes weeks. So that would rattle oil markets and cast a shadow on their preparations for what could be the world's biggest initial public offering because that was set in the trillions i think and it's also set to escalate a showdown which is pitting saudi arabia and the u.s against iran uh interesting little conflict going on there which backs um iran backs proxy groups from yemen to syria and lebanon now iran backed houthi rebels in yemen claimed credit for the attack but the u.s president donald trump and the secretary of state mike pompeo have already pointed the finger directly at Iran. Yes, yeah, so Mr. Trump in you know one of his great Twitter um, posts has said Saudi Arabia oil supply was attacked. There's a reason to believe that we know the culprit are locked and loaded depending on verification, but are waiting to hear from the kingdom, kingdom, that's Saudi Arabia, as to who they believe was the cause of this attack and under what terms we would proceed. Now, it's worth noting at this point probably that um, the US have been itching their finger yeah their finger has been itching for a long time to be able to take out iran Mm. and and they and their allies are actually very they're up for they're up for taking iran out looking for looking for iran to do something to um to, to just give them the excuse and iran just always seem to be doing really stupid things to provoke these very well armed and very well-funded enemies. But anyway, uh, an interesting question was raised in the Jerusalem Post, which was what happened to the Saudi air defence against these 10 aerial drones? Yeah, which is a really good question. And in the article, they say the proximity to Bahrain, which is some 50 kilometres from the area's hit, leads to serious questions about how drones penetrated so deep into Saudi airspace 
and hit strategic facilities, very valuable strategic facilities uh, like Abkhaz and Karai. The US 5th Fleet is also based in Bahrain and America has air base and other facilities along the Gulf from Kuwait to the UAE protected by its air defence. They also have radar that can detect threats more than 150 kilometres away, which should be able to detect drones. And yet the drone attacks at 4am don't seem to have triggered a US response or alert, and an email to CENTCOM resulted in a response that, although they were aware of open source reports, further inquiries should have been detected, uh, sorry, directed to the Saudi Interior Ministry. Um, but interestingly, Saudi Arabia has been warning its allies about the drone threat since May. So they've been keeping that in the headlines for a while, you know, mm. something's going to happen with drones, something's going to happen with drones, and then something happens with drones. It was a great little troll, though. So Putin has, um, has trolled Trump. Uh, he's, he's basically said that Saudi Arabia should buy the Russian air defence system and maybe they'll have some more luck. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, oh, it's a bit it's a bit far, but, you know, that's what these anti-air systems are designed for and mm. Russia have got... You know, they've got the S-400s, which I think they're selling, and they've got some S-500s, which I don't think they're selling. But these systems are actually very, very advanced and should be able to protect against this side of thing. Yeah, so, I mean, you've either got to wonder whether... Um, was it just a failure in these systems or was there something else going on? There are some... If, what, if the official story happened, there are some very lucky Houthi rebels who managed to get some drones hundreds and hundreds of kilometers from Yemen <laughs> to hit, you know, the most valuable oil fields on the planet. But you know what? Um, I'm open to, you know, if, you know, if, 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 you know, 19, you know, Saudis can fly a plane into a building and it falls completely in its footprint. This is not impossible. Censored by the FBI. But interestingly, look, the the Yemeni rebels have been blamed for this, um, the Houthis, and, well, they claimed responsibility. But it's important to bring out some stats about what's going on in Yemen at the moment. They've been going through a brutal war. Um, it started as a civil war, and then outside forces really sort of helped that along its way, and Saudi, Saudi military are now involved in it. But, look, 80% of the Yemeni population... That's 24 million people need humanitarian assistance and protection. And it's the numbers are crazy there. Yeah, so about 20 million need help securing food, uh, almost 10 million um, as just a step away from famine, um, and more than 3 million people, including 2 million children, are malnourished, uh, more vulnerable to disease. And uh, they actually estimate that between around about 85,000 children uh, have severe malnutrition and have you know unfortunately passed away in the last 3 years so it's a it's a very 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 uh, dire situation there in mm. Yemen Mm. And then just looking at a couple other headlines around the the drone attack story, like the BBC News said, look, this drone attack on Saudis um, destabilizes an already very volatile region. I mean, if they go after Yemen for it, not good for Yemen. If they go after Iran on it, not good for the whole region. Mm. Yeah, I'm just sick of hearing about the Middle East, mate, to be honest. I just, I, I, just, I just wish the US could leave it alone. I mean, it has highlighted, though, how reliant we still are on oil, hasn't it? Mm. Like, I mean, they're, they're really, mm. like, even even now, 20 years after 9-11, um, uh, almost 20 years, um, 
we haven't really got that far off off our insane reliance on oil yet. Mm, mm. You know, when, when when all oil lines are cut, it really does have a massive uh, send a massive shockwave throughout the earth because you know the the vast majority of our vehicles still run on oil. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, just it's going to be the knock-on effect's going to start hitting probably pretty soon. Yeah, where we're going to see like regular fuel prices go up a little bit. But uh, good thing my car's at the mechanic, so uh, <laughs> don't need any fuel, do oh, I? Oh, I just filled mine up, so I'm um, you know I've, I've kind of got in ahead of the you're front running, mate. Ahead of the front rush, running. yeah. Maybe I'll siphon some out and um, you know sell it at, <laughs> at five cents below the the going rate in a couple of weeks and Blimey. make a profit. Hey, perfect. You sound like you're a North Korean citizen. (laughs) (laughs) But wherever you're joining us from, it's an absolute pleasure having you here. Thanks for listening to our drivel. And uh, why not drop into our Telegram channel to say hello and then um, lurk for months. You can find it at FOMO.show slash Telegram. So this week in our privacy and security segment, we want to talk about just a couple of little privacy tips uh, around using your private information online and also how to keep your email a bit more private as well. Yeah. Now, I've come across this a few times in the last week alone, you know, where you want to download that online PDF report, but they always say, oh, enter your details first. Now, I hate giving away my real name and real email, and it's just... This week was a great opportunity to just be like plugging in, you know, what's your name, Testy, what's your surname, Testerson, and where do you live, Taiwan. Everything started with T and plugging in random numbers. But I was using maildrop.cc, which is such a good throwaway email service. So I just give them the email address, you know, test at maildrop.cc. And sometimes to download the PDF, they actually send you an email. but if you go to the maildrop.cc, you can actually access any at maildrop.cc email address. So you can give away random emails at maildrop.cc and get access to it without giving away your email address. So it's a good throwaway service. Yeah, like if you're only going to need to use it once, then uh, it's perfect because you literally just put in your um, put in whatever address you want, um, and then you type it, and then you know you give it to them, and you type it in on the maildrop site. And it just opens the inbox up for you, um, and there, there all the emails are. Now, the big thing about it, obviously, is that it is not the inboxes themselves aren't private. So you can, mm. uh, if you've got the email address that you're using or someone else has used, you can literally type that in and open the inbox and see everyone's emails that you, that's used that address. So it's mm. not something you'd want to use for anything private. But for as a throwaway, if you just want to get access to something, you don't want to ever see their emails again. Um, you don't even want it coming to something like a 33 mail address, then this is perfect for doing that. Mm-hmm. See, if you want to find out some other ways of securing your identity online, just uh, take a look at our guide at fomo.show slash privacy. Uh, we put a bunch of cool pieces of advice in there, so check it out. And if you've got other things to add to it, just let us know. Uh, we'd love to update the article. Um, keep it as a living sort of resource as time goes on. Awesome. All right, so it's about time we wrap it. Oh, no, wait, hang on. Uh, we got the phone. Uh, well, my phone's ringing, Joe, so what I'll do, um, I will... Uh, I probably, well, we're not in the same room today, so I'm, I might just pick it up. 
I'll record. Uh, this looks like Jordan, and I'll record these. Well. Right. Jordan, how you going? Have I got you? Oh, Bruce, yes, I've just landed. Ah, you just got back to Joburg, home country. Ah, it's a beautiful place to be, eh? Awesome. Where, where have you been, Jordan? Where, where, where have your travels taken you? Oh, Bru, I've been across the world as always. You know how it goes. But uh, no, interesting. I just just came back from a couple of days in Bahrain. You know, I went to see uh, you know a bit of an extended layover on the way back. You know, coming back to my home country. And um, do you know what? I was staying with a mate, and he is massively into aeronautical engineering. Like he's a plane nut. He loves his planes. He loves his flying. He loves all of this stuff. So cool, huh? Right, and so was this guy from Bahrain, or was he some from some other country? Oh no, he's like a technical consultant. You know, you get a lot of uh, you get quite a few South Africans over there. You know, they're doing their work. They're making stacks of money. Huh? So he's he's got some expensive hobbies. Uh, actually, he, he actually loves flying his you know remote control planes. A big fan, a huh? big fan. Hmm, okay, so. You met this guy who was madly into uh, planes. I mean, Bahrain doesn't really sound like the place that uh, someone who's really good at flying drones would necessarily be staying. Oh, Bru, he actually works at an airport there. So, I know I was just staying. You know, we went to school together. So, I went and caught up with him, spent a few days, you know. I went to his place and because he's not, not far from the airport, he's actually got a you know, decent-sized bit of property there. Huh? But... um. You know, I was sitting there catching up. It had been like, what, like 17, 18 years since I last saw him and chatting, having some beers. And he was like, he said to me, like, oh, look, let's take our drone, like, let's take some of these, you know, let's take some of these these remote control aircraft and take him for a flight. And I was like, absolutely, I love that. That's awesome. So it opens his, you know, it opens his, 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 his uh, like, hangar garage thing. He's got the biggest, you know, the these enormous remote control airplanes they're huge they're like to scale they're like I don't know they're, they're, they're enormous I mean you could fit a, like a chihuahua in there huh? wow okay so so did you get a, a go at these then like did he give you some test flights let you take them out for a spin well yeah we were just having a year we had a barbecue that afternoon and we'd had a few drinks so we were just like oh yeah let's take them out huh? now they're, like, these planes are so big huh? so so what we did is we yeah we um, we 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 filled them up and we, we took them off and you actually control them, you know, with a virtual reality headset, right? So cool. And I was doing some photography, so we were flying them around and went through a bit and, you know, just like half an hour or so. And then, you know, I was, I actually had to go to the bathroom, so I just sort of put the controllers down, huh? Um, but yeah, come back, black screen, I don't know what happened to them, huh? Oh, right. So you, you're like, uh, did you lose connection? Did, did your mate fly them back to the airport or? Oh, What's happened to it? I think I've lost control of it, and he does. You know, he, you know, he's a bit upset, but he's just like, oh, you know, these things happen. But I, I had to leave for my flight, so you know, I jumped in the taxi. But I'd said, look, I hope you can find him sooner. All right, Jordan. You know that there was a like a, a what they're calling a drone attack on a couple of really important oil refineries recently near Bahrain. Yeah. Oh, Bruce, that's obviously nothing to do with me. I'm gone. <laughs> Sorry, I've got to go. Huh? Okay, Jordan. Well, let's let's talk about this again when you, when. Oh no, he's gone. Okay. Um. Yeah. Right. Well, I I don't know if we should we should publish that call, mate, because it sounds like Jordan may have been the cause of the current tension in in the Middle East. Wait, I thought they said it was Iran and Yemen. Now it's Jordan's getting blamed. Yeah. Well, they're blaming all sorts of Middle Eastern countries. So Jordan, you know. 
Anyway, if you know somebody who might enjoy this, why not share it with them or uh, leave us a rating or review in your podcast listening system of choice? Yeah, you can find us at FOMO.show. You can jump on our Telegram chat at FOMO.show slash Telegram. You can follow us on Twitter at the underscore FOMO underscore show. Or listen on YouTube at FOMO.show slash YouTube. That's it for us here at the FOMO Show. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like our show, please do feel free to subscribe in your podcast app of choice or, yeah, via our YouTube channel. I'm Matt. And I'm Joe. And as always, remember, no FOMO. So, yeah, do your research, never invest more you can afford to lose, avoid the fear of missing out, and um, probably final disclosure, we should probably just mention, we, we're not fans of governments here, so uh, sort of any governments whatsoever. It's not easy to listen to if you're a central banker, though, is it? No, no, I, don't, I, I doubt we have any central bankers listening to us. Yeah, too busy I mean. snorting caviar. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, brilliant. You've got to go to the bathroom and eat some caviar. You've literally just uncovered this global <laughs> smuggling ring of like quality caviar. <laughs> oh my days. They ship it under lock and key with armed guards, and you're like, ooh, exclusive caviar. Holy. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, well, they put it in with the printing presses. So when like. When the Australian Federal Reserve sends their like plastic bill printing presses over to the the English Central Bank, you know they include some caviar with the equipment, <laughs> you know. So the boys over in the Central Bank in England will be able to have a grand old time. Yeah, spin out loads of money. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> remarkable productivity.